Ruth chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and covered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, and she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Ruth chapter 3. Let's ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this book, for the message that it contains as we return to chapter 3 for a second time. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to pick up from this text any scattered grains that were left behind the last time through. Enable us, Lord, to glean to our prophet among the rich treasures of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The last time we were in Ruth chapter 3, we drew particular attention to the institution of marriage, when Naomi says, shall I not seek security for you to Ruth? The word there is, shall I not seek rest for you? And we considered the reality that according to God's institution, as well as according to experience, marriage, a stable, committed, long-term relationship that both people work at, is your best bet for earthly stability, for rest in terms of this world. Obviously, it's not ultimate. Obviously, it's not a guarantee. There are many things that happen. There are many things that can go wrong. But taking one thing with another, this is the best option. And so Naomi, as one who cared about Ruth, sought to provide for her. We saw also that in order to 
function in this beneficent way, compatibility is important. Ruth and Boaz will go well together because they are both people of virtue. Boaz specifically says to Ruth in chapter 3 that she's a woman of virtue, and we were told in chapter 2 that Boaz was a man of virtue, although the way it's translated is a man of great wealth, but they're equivalent expressions. And we looked at the ingredients of that. Both Ruth and Boaz acknowledge the Lord. They have genuine piety. Their lives are oriented around God. They are both kind in the sense, yes, of being considerate, of taking care for others, but also and perhaps supremely in the sense of being loyal, in the sense of being reliably loving day after day and year after year. And we also saw that they also share the characteristic of being diligent or hardworking. And then we looked at the reality that in marrying Ruth, Boaz really goes above and beyond the requirements laid on a close relative. A close relative had the right to redeem property, but there was a relative closer than Boaz, and the relatives were not absolutely compelled to do it, as is seen by the fact that this other closer relative ultimately opts not to do that. But Boaz went above and beyond. And in his going above and beyond, he is a type of Christ, who was under under no obligation to save us or to redeem us, but who did so nonetheless. And we saw also that Christ surpasses Boaz in that Boaz found something attractive in Ruth. He was making a good bargain in a way when he married Ruth. But of course, when Christ set his love upon us, we had nothing to offer him. Well, with all of that by way of review, you may wonder, well, what is there left in Ruth chapter 3 to consider? Well, there's still a few more observations we could make. Sticking just with the theme of marriage, we could notice that wisdom in marriage allows itself to be guided. Ruth does not make this decision all on her own. She listens to Naomi. She accepts input from the family. Marriage is not simply a question of, oh, my feelings, my feelings. There's also wise input from seasoned relatives, which factors into the match. I'm not arguing in favor of a complete return to arranged marriages, but there is wisdom in listening to those who know you best. There is wisdom in listening to those who can see through and beyond the light of what, after all, could be a temporary infatuation, because that also happens. Or sticking with that theme of marriage, You can notice that although there's clearly strong feeling involved, Ruth is raring to go with regard to marriage, so is Boaz, yet they're committed to doing things the right way. Ruth follows Naomi's instructions, and Boaz doesn't usurp the position of the closer relative. They hash it out quickly, they get it settled as fast as they can, but they're not governed by feelings. Now, this is not to say that feelings should not be present, but think about it in terms of the analogy of a car. 
You do need an engine or you're not going to get anywhere. But if you have a car with a functioning engine and no steering wheel, you may get somewhere, but is that somewhere where you wanted to go? Is that somewhere where you needed to be? Or what if you have a car but no roads? That's also very difficult then, depending on the car. Well, for Ruth and for Boaz, there is the engine. They do have the feelings, but there's also the steering wheel. They're governed by wisdom. For many years now, there's been this idea that a really strong feeling, love that's intense will sweep everything away, and there can be no objection. There can be no legitimate barrier to that. That's nonsense, and that has done a tremendous amount of harm. Feelings are not an excuse to toss law out of the window. Feelings are not an excuse to toss wisdom out the window either. Ruth and Boaz have feelings, that's clear, but those feelings are governed by what God's law says. They're governed by wise input from other people as well. They're governed by a certain amount of respect for what is customary, what is expected. How do we do things properly within our society? Now, if how we do things within our society conflicts with God's law, then we know which one needs to give way. But if your feelings are not able to be channeled by those roads of God's law and what is usually done, if your feelings are not under the restraint of wisdom, then the reality is that your feelings are most likely going to lead you to disaster. So as you see, there's still more that we could say about marriage from this particular passage. But let's move on from that, and let's notice how this fits into the plot of the book a little bit more. You remember what has happened so far. Naomi had traveled to Moab with her family to get away from famine, and there she suffered the loss of her husband, and her two sons. She gained two daughters-in-law, but one of them turned back. So she comes back to Bethlehem with just Ruth. And when she comes back, everybody is stirred. And they say, is this Naomi? And she said, no, don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, because the hand of the Lord has been heavy upon me. I went out full, and I came back empty. And as we've seen before, That's a little hard on Ruth, who's standing right there. Naomi neglects the blessing that Ruth is. But Ruth doesn't let that stop her. Ruth, in her kindness, in her loyal love, goes out to work, goes out to glean in the fields to provide for Naomi. Well, Naomi has begun to learn to recognize blessings there. She's pronounced a blessing on whoever was so hospitable to Ruth, which turned out to be Boaz. And now she begins to think, what should I do for Ruth? Towards the end of this chapter, when Ruth comes back, she reports that Boaz told her, don't go empty to your mother-in-law. There's an echo there. Naomi had said, I'm empty. Boaz says, don't go back to her empty. You see, 
Naomi's emptiness is going to be overcome. And it's going to be overcome through Boaz and through Ruth. But when is that underlined? When is that made evident to Naomi? It's made clear to her when she begins to look out for somebody else. There's a lesson there for all of us. When we are selfish, when we are self-centered, when we are looking out for number one, when we prioritize our own needs because nobody else can be trusted to prioritize us, we do feel empty. And we often wind up with more emptiness than we would otherwise experience. But when we can follow Paul's injunction not to look on our own things only, but also on the things of others, when we can begin to think about what could we do for somebody else, we often find more fullness, more joy than we would otherwise experience. A selfish life is an empty life. Now, I'm not saying that you don't take care of basic needs. You're not two years old. You know when you're hungry. You know when you're tired. And you have more direct access to that information than anybody else. So, yes, you absolutely need to take care of things like that instead of making the people around you notice when you're hungry or tired or whatever because you got cranky and now they're on the hook to fix that for you. I'm not talking about being idiotically self-denying to that degree where you pretend you don't have limitations or you pretend you don't have needs. That's not accurate. That's just making your needs somebody else's problem. But what I am talking about is not focusing on yourself, not constantly running through in your mind. Well, this is what I need. This is what people are not doing for me. This is what I've lost. This is what I'm missing. That is a miserable way to live. It's miserable for the people around you, but forget them for a second. It's miserable for you too. A much more fruitful, a much more full way to live is, yes, handle your basic needs, but think about serving others. Naomi has now come to the point she can think about providing for Ruth. Ruth has been providing for her. Now she thinks about providing for Ruth, and they both receive provision. That's how love, that's how kindness, the Hebrew term is hesed, that's how that's supposed to work. I look out for you, you look out for me. And guess what? Everybody's taken care of. That's exemplified, that's illustrated here in this book. And there's a call to us to live in the same way. Now, Ruth also gives us an illustration of that. When Boaz asks her, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Now, that was only true through her connection with Naomi. That wasn't true genetically. We've been told again and again that Ruth is a Moabitess. But in Naomi's name, and at least in part for Naomi's sake, Ruth is a little bold. Ruth is a little forward. And she proposes marriage to Boaz. I'm not sure Naomi expected things to go that way. She had told Ruth, He'll tell you what to do. Well, 
to some extent, Ruth told Boaz what to do. But it wasn't just personal. I'm not saying her feelings were not involved. They were. But she was also continuing to care for Naomi. And you see that in a number of ways. You see that from her resolution in chapter one. She's going to stick by Naomi no matter what. You see that in chapter two. She can't care for Naomi in other ways at that point, so she goes out to work to provide food. You see that in her request here, and you see that in chapter four, the child that is born to Boaz and Ruth, Naomi, winds up taking care of that child. That child replaces those whom she had lost already to the degree that that's possible. So when Ruth requests a settlement from Boaz, when she asks him to take her under his wing, she's asking not just for herself, she's asking for Naomi. I think that's part of the force of the argument, for you are. Why should he do that? Because you are a close relative, because you have this connection already existing in light of the fact that you belong to Naomi's wider family circle. So you see again this model of kindness, of loyal love, where Naomi is looking out for Ruth, Ruth is looking out for Naomi, and Boaz accepts the responsibility of looking out for both of them, which he does as long as he can do that in the proper way without cutting ahead of somebody else in line. Now, there's another unusual feature of this passage, which is not immediately apparent. Verse 16, when Ruth came back to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, is that you, my daughter? Now, that is actually the question, who are you? It's the same form as when Boaz says to Ruth in verse 9, who are you? But there's a difference between these two questions. You remember the situation. Boaz has had a big day at the threshing floor, and then he's had a good meal, and now he's fallen asleep, kind of camping out there. But he wakes up in the middle of the night, and somebody is right there with him, which was not the case when he fell asleep. So Boaz's question is a question of identification. Who is this? Who are you? And you notice the answer he receives. I'm Ruth your maidservant. In answer to a question where he genuinely didn't know, Ruth explained, this is my name, this is the relationship that I have to you. But Naomi's question, even though it's the same form, who are you? It's not about identification. She's not confused. Who is this young woman who's come in carrying the grain? And you can see that because she even says, who are you, my daughter? Well, she knows who she is. This is Ruth, her daughter, her daughter-in-law, but they have a warm and affectionate relationship. So she says, my daughter. So what is the meaning of the question, who are you, when Naomi already knows who Ruth is? Other translations will have something like, how did it go? What happened? Well, that is the purport of the question. That's what the question is getting at. Naomi is eager to hear, how did things go? But she asks it in this form of, who are you, for a reason. The reason is that if Boaz has proposed marriage, 
if they are now engaged, to some degree, that makes Ruth a different person. Why? Because it puts her in a new relationship. We are defined partially by our relationships. Who are you is a question that you can only fully answer when you bring in who you are in relation to other people. Of course, that's peppered throughout the Bible. People are identified as such and such, the son of so-and-so, for instance, belonging to this or that tribe from some nation or another. Even in the book of Ruth, Ruth is identified as a Moabitess, whereas Naomi is identified as belonging to the family of Elimelech from the town of Bethlehem and the tribe of Judah. So who are you is at least in part a question about relationships. And Naomi asks Ruth, who are you, my daughter? Well, she already knows who Ruth is in relationship to her, but she's asking, who are you in relationship to Boaz? Now, Ruth doesn't answer this question the way she did to Boaz. The reason she doesn't answer it that way is that the matter is still up in the air. So she tells Naomi what happened, all that the man had done for her, and then she adds this detail that he said, don't go empty-handed, here's a pledge, Boaz will take care of it. But for right now, Ruth can't fully answer the question. What relationship she's in to Boaz is going to depend on what happens in chapter 4, which Ruth, from the viewpoint of the story, hasn't gotten to yet. We already know the outcome, but Ruth is still in suspense. But there's a very important principle there. That idea of being a near relative, he is, Boaz is, a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, as the authorized version would have it. So who we are is defined in relation to our Redeemer. You cannot answer that question properly. Who are you? Unless you plug in that portion, that vital, that fundamental portion about your relationship to your Redeemer. If you think about it, We could rephrase question one in our catechism. As it stands, it asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? But how does the answer go? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Who are you? That could be the answer to that. Who am I? Well, I'm not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior. Jesus Christ. Or again, still sticking with the catechism, we could say that the answer to the question, who are you, comes up in another question and answer with regard to the Holy Catholic Church. The end of that answer professes that I am and forever shall remain a living member of the communion that the Son of God, by his word and spirit, is gathering out of the world for his name. Who are you? Who are you with reference to Christ? Well, biblically, we can answer that. If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, who am I? I'm a child of God. 
Who am I? I'm a descendant of Abraham. Who am I? I'm part of the bride of Christ. Who am I? I'm a living member of the universal church. Hopefully, everyone here can answer those questions, that question this morning in that way. Who are you in reference to your Redeemer? Is the Lord Jesus Christ fundamental to your identity? Is the first thing that is true of you. Now, the first thing that is true of you in order of time is that you're God's creation. That's the first thing because God has to make you first, right? For you to be around, for anything else to be true about you. So the very first thing starting in order of time is I am God's creation. But of course, you share that with a lot of other people. You share that with everything that exists, that God has made it. So the most fundamental thing, the first thing in order of importance is to whom do you belong? Whose are you? Do you belong to Christ? Is that who you are? Boaz, again, as the Redeemer, is a type of Christ. Ruth's identity was going to be defined with reference to him. Now, in our case, so to speak, our chapter 4 has already been written. We know how Christ settled the matter. We know that he acquired us on the cross. He paid the full price for our redemption. So we are already related to him. There shouldn't be uncertainty in our case. If there is uncertainty in your case, by all means, feel free to speak with me. That is something we need to pray about. That is something we need to discuss because we are called upon in Scripture to make our calling and election sure. It is important to know whom we have believed. It is important to be confident, to have assurance of faith, as we often express it. But we don't need to wait to find out. Christ is better than Boaz in this particular as well because he has already done what we need in order to be redeemed. If somebody raises the question, who are you? We can boldly answer with reference to our Redeemer, we are the Lord's. We belong to him, body and soul, in life, and in death. Now, there's still some waiting to do, as Naomi said to Ruth, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. Well, we don't have to sit still to know how the matter will turn out. We know how the matter turned out, but we sit still, so to speak, awaiting the wedding day. The legalities are all settled. Everything has been finalized, but we sit still. We await the return of Christ. We wait the consummation of what he has already done for us. But we're in a better position than Ruth was. At the end of chapter 3, we already know what has been accomplished. We already know how our Redeemer made things turn out. So what about you this morning? Do you belong to your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know you belong to him? Knowing you belong to him 
Can you sit still in hope, awaiting his return? Oh, may God grant that it be so for all of us who are here today. Amen.